Let me ask you to turn your attention once more to Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. This is God's Word. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called to him and he said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm, not ash- I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and will despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. Lord God, we thank you for this, your word. We ask that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might perceive your words and understand, Lord, how you would have us to live and to glorify you. We ask that you would direct us in this. We, we pray for those this morning, our brothers and sisters who are not here with us or who are in the midst of trials and suffering. We pray for those who are sick, that you would give them good health. I pray for Grace Williamson as she continues to mourn the loss of her father. I pray for Sue Crow's sister Amy, that you would be with her this day, that you would give her miraculous healing, and that you would bless her, Lord, as she suffers, but as her faith is strengthened in you. We ask, our Father, that you would be here with us by your Spirit as you work among your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, over the coming weeks, you all are going to hear more about our capital campaign. Our capital campaign is launching in just a few short weeks from now, and the capital campaign is this project for raising the funds to build the building that we believe that God has called us to build for this congregation that has been without a permanent home for years. For many of you, that will be a a very new thing. You'll start hearing about the capital campaign, but for many others of you, it's something you've been thinking about for months or years. If you've been a member of this church for a very long time, you've been praying about this and thinking about this. I've been thinking and praying about it myself 
for years. And just a, a few months ago, we were driving in our automobile, our car, and I was driving, my kids were in the back, and I was telling them about how excited I am about the opportunity to build a building and about how hard it is to endeavor upon a capital campaign. And my daughter says to me from the back seat, she says, Dad, you don't have to worry about raising the money to build the building. There's going to be no problem. The money will be there. And I thought as I was driving, well, this is a, a proud moment for a father, right? She's going to say something about how uh, if God has planned the project, He will provide the means. Or if we trust Him in the midst of our trials, uh, He will meet us where we are. And so I asked her, I said, well, what gives you so much confidence, Naomi? What, why do you think that this won't be a problem? And she said, well, it's very simple. If just one person in your congregation wins the lottery, <laughs> and she says, I mean the big lottery, the one that's on the billboard, okay? And I, and I say to her, you mean the Mega Millions? And she said, yeah, if just one person wins the Mega Millions, and if they win like $50 million, they'll tithe $5 million of that, right, Dad? She said, that will be enough to build the church building, won't it? Uh, yeah, that would be enough. And she followed up with, I think even the other one would be enough, the Powerball, right? Yes, the Powerball would be enough as well, okay? This morning... Jesus introduces the subject of money and wealth. And you've probably heard people say this before, Jesus often speaks about our money and our wealth. And it's not just something people say, it is true. This is a very common subject for Jesus. It's an awkward subject for many of us, but it's a common subject for Jesus. As a matter of fact, from Luke chapter 16, where we are this morning, through Luke chapter 20, we're going to be bombarded with the subject of money and wealth. Over and over again, we will see Jesus through parables, exhortations, encouragements, rebukes, speaking about our money and our wealth. There are some times when Jesus speaks, and it's very obvious what He means to say. There are other places, like the passage this morning, where Jesus speaks and shares a parable, and we're left kind of scratching our heads. And you probably felt that way as you read this passage, right? You might have thought, did I just read that wrong? Did I get some of the words wrong? Uh, maybe you have a study Bible and you flip to the bottom of the page. You said the study Bible has got to explain what's happening in this parable. Maybe like a good Presbyterian, you're sitting there saying, well, when he pulls out the Greek, then I'm going to understand this parable. Then it'll make sense. This parable this morning is actually very straightforward. The way that it sounds is the way that Jesus intended it to sound. And it's going to be striking but it will help us as Jesus makes an important observation in chapter 8, in verse 8, sorry, verse 8 of chapter 16. So this morning, as we look at this parable, I, I will tell you it is as it sounds it is. Now, let's first look at the parable, and then we'll go to an observation and finally some instruction that Jesus gives. The parable begins in verse 1, and Jesus says, there was a rich man. There was a rich man. This is a phrase that he repeats seven times in the Gospel of Luke, only once in Matthew, once in Mark. Seven times in the Gospel of Luke, and five of those times are in the next three chapters, okay? There was a rich man, Jesus says. This man that Jesus begins to tell a story about, he has lots of property and possessions and belongings and things, so much so that he hires for himself a manager, the Greek word for manager that's used here is the word oikos nomos, which is literally a house lawyer. He hires for himself a house lawyer. 
someone who will administer his, all of his belongings. And we read in verse 2 that this manager of the rich man's household was wasting his possessions. We are not told whether it was through incompetence or negligence or a downright corruption, but we are told that he was doing a very poor job of managing the master's possessions. And so the master or the rich man in verse 2, he fires the manager. Now, I thought it was interesting that the firing process hasn't very much changed in the last 2,000 years. If you've ever been fired, you know it's very simple. It goes like this. Hey, clean out your desk, turn your things in, your check will be in the mail, right? And that's pretty much what the rich man says to the manager. Turn in the account of your management for you no longer can be the manager, okay? Turn in your possessions. Your time here is done. You served well or not so well. See you later. And what follows the firing of the manager is this internal monologue, right? It is the, if it was a comic strip and each of these were in different frames, verse 3 would have some thought bubbles emerging from the head of the manager. He thinks to himself in verse 3, and he says, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. If you've ever been let go from a job, you know what this feels like, right? This is the only thing I've done for the last 20 years. What am I going to do now? I've never done anything else. And he says, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm, I'm too ashamed to beg. What will I do? And in verse 4, again, if this was a comic strip, verse 4 would have a light bulb going off over the manager's head, right? Bing! Okay, he's got an idea. It's a brilliant idea. What does he say in verse 4? I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. You see what the manager does? It's very simple. He's got this idea. He will go to the people who owe the master money or belongings or possessions, and he will say to them, listen, how much do you owe? You owe him 100 bucks and some change? I'll tell you what. Let's make it 75. We'll call it a day. Okay. How much do you owe the master? Oh, he, he gave you 20 gallons of gasoline for your car. Okay, you give him back 15, we'll call it even. Things will be good, right? And you, you see what the manager is doing. He's negotiating with his people who are saying, oh, this is terrific. This is my lucky day. I, I owed so much, but the manager tells me I only owe this. Now we're, we're, we're best buddies. We're going to have you over for Christmas dinner. We're going to make you the godfather of our children. I mean, you have really made our day. He's making for himself friends that will last for a lifetime. And it, it's very interesting because it seems as if the manager doesn't have the authority to negotiate with the rich man's belongings, but we're struck with this very odd statement that the rich man makes. It says that he commended the manager for his shrewdness. He commended the manager for his shrewdness. Now, I think there is something worth explaining at this moment about the manager. Listen, in, in, in Old Testament Jewish law, it was illegal for Jews to charge interest to other Jews. Okay, they, they could not do that. And so uh, people, especially wealthy people, invented ways to get around this. And one of the primary ways to get around this was very simple. The rich man would say, manager, listen, 
I'm lending my things. I don't, know, I don't want to know what you're doing with them, but you can charge whatever interest you want. I want a little bit of it, and you will also pay yourself out of it, okay? This was the common practice, and it was kind of looked at as, well, the manager's getting paid. It's not interest. The manager's just getting paid, okay? And most commentators, they, they speculate that what's happening in the parable is very simple. The, the manager has a cut, for each and everything that was lent of, of the masters to the people. And he has a cut, and literally what he's saying to the people is, okay, my portion, you didn't know what my portion was, but I'm, I'm just going to forget about it. You pay back basically what was truly owed to the master, and we'll call it a deal, okay? He is essentially, he's forfeiting his own profit for future long-term relationship with the people. He sees that as more beneficial in the long run. That's what's happening in the parable. Now, that's the, the, the story that Jesus tells. And listen, you can probably imagine now the disciples who are standing there, and they have been through the parable process with Jesus now a number of times, right? And every time, they think they know what's happening, and then Jesus strikes them at the end with the, the, uh, the kind of tagline that they least expect, and it's like a punch to the gut. It takes the wind out of their stomach, and they, they're thinking, okay, I didn't see that coming. And it's usually pretty biting or convicting of them, isn't it? And so the disciples hear this parable, and I can guarantee they're probably thinking, where is Jesus going with this? What in the world is he going to do with this parable? Is he going to condemn the dishonest manager? Is he going to commend the rich man? Is he going to speak about the folly of taking on debt? What is Jesus about to say? And when he tells them that the, the rich man commended the manager, he transitions into this important observation and listen, this is the linchpin between the parable and the instruction that Jesus will give. It's in verse 8, okay? This is Jesus' observation now of those who follow him. It says in verse 8, the second part of verse 8, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. That's the observation that Jesus makes, and I tell you the truth, it is meant to be heard as a sad, melancholy, negative observation concerning the children of light, okay? It's not a happy statement. Jesus is essentially saying, he uses the word shrewd, okay? Shrewd means prudence, wisdom. It can even mean cunning or manipulation. It's not a positive or a negative word, but it really means the ability to plan and to perceive. He says to his disciples and to us who would follow him, the children of this world, they are more wise or planning or cunning or prepared or prudent in their dealings than are the children of life. Now, I think it's important to understand exactly what Jesus is observing and why it's meant to cut, to cut to our hearts and produce a sense of repentance within us, okay? Jesus has essentially just compared the two primary groups of people in this world, right? The, the children of this world, they're following the prince of darkness. Uh, they are themselves children of darkness, children of destruction, the way that Jesus often describes them. He's comparing them to the followers of Christ who would, by faith, follow Him. And the comparison I think that's important this morning 
is that we understand that the children of this world, they have their eyes on immediate uh, dividends. They have their eyes on immediate satisfaction. They consider that this lifetime is the only thing that they need to care about. That the children of light are the ones who should have their eyes on eternity. And yet, the children of this world are the ones who are more shrewd with the things that they've been given. And the children of eternity are the ones who don't have an eye for future gains. An investment in future rewards. And so it's a very convicting message that Jesus shares. I, I think of it like this, okay? The children of light in their 700,000th year, in the new heavens and the new earth, they will look back at this world and they will say, well, that's 70 years on earth. It's like it was here and gone. I, I barely remember it, okay? Those children of light who will spend eternity with their Savior in glory ought to be more shrewd with the things that He's given them here concerning the in eternal investment. And yet the children of this world seem to be more shrewd. This is the way it ought to feel every time you pick up an article or you read on the internet and you hear about Jeff Bezos or Warren Buffett or Bill Gates donating $3 billion to stop world hunger or $2 billion to prevent poverty. Okay, you should read that and you say, wow, that's, that's children of this world, shrewd with their possessions, seemingly doing things that are important to the kingdom of God. Where are the children of light in this? It should be a bit convicting. J.C. Ryle, uh, who is in his preaching and uh, writing, was very poetic. J.C. Ryle said this, and I think this is a good summary. He said, The diligence of worldly men about the things of time should put to shame the coldness of professing Christians about the things of eternity. The diligence of worldly men, let me repeat it, the diligence of worldly men about the things of time should put to shame the coldness of professing Christians about the things of eternity. So the observation that Jesus makes is convicting and it ought to be. It ought to put to shame, as Ryle just noted there. That's the observation that Jesus makes to the disciples who are gathered around Him. And I tell you the truth, I, I truly believe that if Jesus was present today speaking to American churches, He could make the same conclusion even more so. The children of this world are more shrewd in their dealings, they're more prudent in their dealings than are the children of light. And with that observation, then Jesus proceeds to give words of instruction to His disciples. He says, if that's the case, now let me tell you how you ought to live in light of that shortcoming, in light of your inability, in light of your failures, okay? And Jesus will then proceed in verses 11, 12, and 13 to give instruction. But let me just direct your attention really briefly to verse 13. In verse 13, a passage many of you have often heard, Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
See, as Jesus makes the observation about the shrewdness of the children of light, it really boils down to this very simple observation. Are you worshiping God or are you worshiping money and your possessions and your belongings, right? This will tell you why you have failed to be shrewd with your belongings, with your wealth, with your money. It will tell you why you have failed to invest in the kingdom of God, into eternal things. Because by and large, we have idolatry in our hearts, and we, as Jesus says, we try to serve two masters, but no man can do that. And there's lots of good questions the Christian can ask to, to decipher their own heart, whether they are worshiping God or worshiping money. One of the great uh, commonly repeated observations would be to look at your own bank account, right? Where your wallet is, there is your worship. And so where is your money being spent? How are you spending it? What does it tell you about the things that you're worshiping? But I think as we think about Christ's instruction here, I think there's a very helpful observation to be made from the parable. And let me ask it in this way, okay? I have a question for you. When the, the rich man commends the manager, what does he actually commending him for? What is the rich man looking at the manager and saying, that was pretty good? Okay, because the manager isn't saying, hey, you're a great, the, the, the rich man's not saying, you are a great manager, I want to hire you back. It's not what he's saying. He is commending him for something very specific, almost like, well done. Didn't see that coming, but you really did well with that. What is he commending him for? The word that's used is shrewdness, but let me suggest to you, this is what the rich man really sees in the manager at this moment. The manager understands the urgency of the moment. He, he had just been relieved from duty. There's no income coming in. It's the end of his work, okay? He sees the urgency of the moment, and he is trading immediate profit for future reward, okay? It's very simple. He sees the urgency of the moment, he swaps, he trades, he exchanges immediate profits for future rewards. And, and you see how the manager does that, right? Oh, I'm going I'm to build some good relationships here. I, 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 may, I may not get paid the 25 bucks I was owed from this individual, but I sure am going to have a, a good relationship with these people. They're going to welcome me into their homes, the manager says. He sees the urgency of the moment. He trades present profit. Immediate profit for future rewards, for future dividends, okay? And let me tell you, this is what we're always doing with our wealth and money, whether you know it or not, okay? What, what are we doing when we contribute to retirement? We're, we are forfeiting present profit for future dividends, rewards. 7% interest for the next 30 years, compounding is going to give me a good nest egg, right? That's what everybody thinks about, Okay? forfeiting present profit for future reward. What are we doing when we buy a house? We're forfeiting present profit for future reward, and we're saying we're going to be in this house for X number of years, and it's going to produce well for us, and we're going to have people over and friends, and we're going to, whatever we're going to do in this house, that's future reward. College students, what do you say when you go to college? Well, this is how much it's going to cost, X number of dollars, and we're going to forfeit present profit for future reward, a college degree. And somebody's going to hire us. It's going to be great. Okay. Children, you know, we, we even do this, if you say to your parents, let me take a dollar out of my piggy bank, I want to go buy an ice cream cone. Okay, it's very simple. 
maybe $2. I don't know how much ice cream cones cost anymore. Let me take money in my piggy bank and buy an ice cream cone. What you're saying is I'm forfeiting the, the current profit, my $2 that came out of my piggy bank. I'm, I'm forfeiting that for future reward. The sugar that hits my tongue, the way that it fills my stomach, the way that it makes me feel, that's the future reward I'm forfeiting present profit for. We do this with everything we have. And I think the reason that Jesus would exhort and rebuke his followers is not because we don't get this concept, it's because we don't see the value in the future reward of investing in the kingdom of God. We will look at our wealth and we will look at our money and we will say, okay, I can see the value in retirement, I can see the value in a college education, I can see the value in purchasing a home. We are not convinced of the future reward of investing in the kingdom of God. If we fail to do this, okay, we're not convinced of it. We don't see the the correlation, the connection, the nexus, the meeting point between our wealth and our goods and the kingdom of God. And and Jesus says it in a variety of different ways in this passage. You look at at verse 9. Verse 9 is probably one of those you tripped over. In verse 9 it says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. You know what Jesus is saying? I think the phrase unrighteous wealth is the one that really gets us. And we're like, what? Is he saying rob a bank and donate it to the church? Um, no, he's not saying that, okay? The NIV, I think, is more helpful. The NIV says, uh, by means of worldly wealth, okay? By means of worldly wealth. The, the message of Jesus is the things of this world, use them for the sake of the kingdom, specifically here, he says, in your relationship. And the picture that he paints is so that when it fails, and I think the NIV says, so when you fail, I like that better. So when you fail, when you expire, when you come to the end, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. You get this beautiful picture of the relationships that you invest in, that those that you invest for the sake of the gospel, they will be standing in heaven welcoming you into the kingdom of God. And that, brothers and sisters, is a beautiful reward. Is it not? That people who we invest our belongings into will join us in the chorus of saints declaring the praises of God and will welcome us into His kingdom. That is beautiful. One, one Puritan in talking about this passage, one Puritan uh, said it like this. He said, only in glory can such Irony of ironies be true that the helpless in this world will be standing in that world to help us in that final day. And I think that is a wonderful truth that Jesus puts before our vision of one of the rewards of investing in the kingdom of God. So this passage this morning, it simply begs the question, how are we spending our wealth and our possessions? How are we investing the things that have been entrusted to us? Are we investing in a place uh, where moth and rust destroy, as Jesus would say in Matthew 6? Or are we investing our treasures in the kingdom of God where thieves cannot steal, that, that yields future dividends in glory? Are we investing in the kingdom of God? This morning, let me only say this. I think about the categories of people are here. 
that are here this morning. And let me just briefly to speak to each of you as we wrap up this passage. Let me first say to the children, uh, you may have tuned out for half of the sermon, but let me tell you this, okay? Children, you need to be doing this right now. My encouragement to you is when you go home today, make a list of everything you have, okay? And that list could be very simple. It could be like, I've got one teddy bear, a box of blocks, five bucks in my piggy bank, a video game, and my favorite blanket, okay? Those are your things. Those are the things you have. Make a list of those things. Ask yourself the question, how are those things being used to yield future dividends in the kingdom of God? How are they being used for the sake of the gospel and the world around you? How am I showing others the love of Christ Jesus for the things that I have, okay? Uh, High schoolers, college students, Uh, Let me tell you this, the world that you are in is built around the worship of money. It's just true. From the time you're in, uh, let's say, ninth grade all the way through the time you graduate or however far you go through college or uh, when you get a job in the world, whatever you're doing, the world is saying to you, what career will make you the most money? Think about it. Where will you profit the most? Where will you find uh, the least amount of student debt for the most amount of profit and go there and do that? When you get offered a job, take the one that gets you the most money, okay? That's what the world is telling you. The world is encouraging the worship of money, and I want to encourage you with this, okay? There are many other questions that you ought to be asking as you endeavor upon this journey. Where will God be most glorified, okay? What career might I glorify Him in? When I'm given job offers, where can I go that God might be glorified, that the kingdom of God might be expanded through me? Those are important questions, and I tell you the truth, if you're asking those questions, God will answer, okay? He will direct your steps as you seek to follow Him and glorify Him with your belongings and your possessions. And for the rest of us, it's very simple, okay? We, historically speaking, this group of people are the wealthiest group of people in the history of the world, right? We have been given things that past generations never had the privilege of. We have been afforded, you know, great benefits things that people 100 years ago could have never imagined. And my encouragement to you is very simple. The Apostle Paul says this in the letter to Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. This is us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, Storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's my encouragement to all of you. I'll leave you with these words. This past week, as I was getting ready for the sermon, uh, my son was home with me and I was preaching out loud and he said, this is great, Dad. I get to listen to you while you preach. And then he said, "Uh, why are you talking so much about money? And I kind of flippantly said to him, uh, well, you know, money makes the world go round. And, uh, you know, that, that was incorrect, first of all. But I said it, and he said, Dad, what are you talking about? Money doesn't make the world go round. God makes the world go round. And I thought, what a helpful observation. Let us, as Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, let us live as if God makes the world go round. Let us live as if our days are determined by Him, as if our wealth is determined by Him, our possessions are determined by Him. Let us live as if they are His, and they've been entrusted to us for a short period of time. In the span of eternity, we will look back on our possessions and we will say that they were nothing. 
they, they are gone from our attention. We have forgotten those things. But let us use those things, investing in eternal, in eternal dividends that will produce for the kingdom of God many saints who will sing the chorus, worshiping our Lord with us in heaven. Would you now please join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you and we thank you that you have not been silent about our possession. And Lord God, we know that there is this question out there that looms for us, how do the things of this world affect the things of eternity? And we confess, Lord God, that sometimes we can live frivolously with our belongings. Sometimes we can live as if the things of this world just don't matter at all. I ask, Father, that you would convict our hearts, that we would see that as you have blessed us with possessions abundantly, that you have blessed us that we might be a wise and shrewd manager of the few things that you have given us, that we would use them for the sake of your kingdom, whether that be investing in the lives of our neighbors, or serving in the foster care system or with care portal, or whether that be serving those who are less fortunate than ourselves, whether that be going into our cities and towns and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and giving freely of our times and our possessions, whether that be giving to the work of this church or to the work of Christians around the world through missions or to the capital campaign for the building of this building, whatever it may be, Lord God, convict our heart that we would give freely as you have freely given to us and that you would use these things in an exponential way for the glory of your Son, for the building of your kingdom, and for the spreading of the gospel. We ask, Lord God, that you would do that for your glory. And in Jesus Christ's name, we ask all of this. Amen.